Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wine, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. We're talking today about cervical cancer screening and the many changes to the field in the last few years. It used to be very simple. A woman had an annual pap test. Now we have new tests, different tests altogether, updated guidelines that for most women mean the annual pap is a thing of the past. It can all be very confusing, even for healthcare providers. But that's not to worry, because we are joined by Ina Park, MD, who's going to help us wrap our heads around all of this. Dr. Park is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine and the Department of Family and Community Medicine. She's also the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center. Dr. Park, thanks for taking time to join us today. That's wonderful to be here, Fred. So let's start with a test available to screen women for cervical cancer and how frequently to have them. In contrast to the old standard of the annual PAP, now the options include a woman being screened every five years using the PAP HPV test for women 30 and older, every three years using a PAP alone, and a new option, HPV primary screening every three years for women 25 and older, where you're using an HPV test followed by a PAP for certain results. Wow, that's a lot. I'm getting confused just even even trying to pose the question to you. So, I know. And, and on top of that, each approach extends screening intervals well beyond the annual PAP that for most women has been a standard routine part of their care. So, let's just let's just break it down first with HPV tests. What about HPV tests? How do they differ from the PAP and why are they helpful to help healthcare providers in the first place? So, you know, HPV tests, Fred, really detect the presence of the virus, and the HPV tests are often detecting multiple types of the virus at the same time. And, and usually the result that's given to the provider is whether or not someone has an HPV type that could potentially be um, a cause of cervical cancer or precancer. And then the PAP test, on the other hand, really detects changes to your cells of the cervix that are actually caused by the virus itself. But a pap test could be affected by other factors, you know, such as inflammation or other hormonal changes like menopause. So those pap tests are not specifically detecting HPV, but they really detect, you know, abnormal cellular changes when HPV is persistent um, over a long period of time. Um, and as you may know, that HPV is, can be present without causing any harm or symptoms. Uh, so just the mere presence of HPV doesn't really tell us whether or not the person has cervical precancer or cancer. But the thing that these newer HPV tests do tell us is not just that you have HPV, but actually whether a person is uh, infected with the types of HPV that are most often associated with cervical cancer in the United States, and those are type 16 and type 18. Yeah. So they're a nice adjunct to, um, to the, the old sort of pap testing that we, that we had before. And just to back up a little bit, maybe sure. we should just talk about HPV, the human papillomavirus. It's an incredibly sure. common infection. I've heard it referred to as the common cold of sexually transmitted infections because 75, 80% of sexually active people are thought to have an HPV infection at some point. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I think the current thinking now is that most people will get exposed to HPV at some point during their sexual lives. And luckily, the vast majority of people clear HPV to the point where it can no longer be detected. You know, at least 90% of folks should get rid of it within the first two years. But for those people where HPV persists, and if you happen to be infected with those types that can cause cervical cancer or precancer, um, they can start leading to those abnormal changes um, and precancerous changes in the cervix. They can also cause these changes in the anus, 
the vulva and vagina and, of course, in the um, what we call the oropharynx or, um, you know, the, the oral cavity. Okay. So as far as, as HPV and cervical infections and cervical changes go, we've, we have several options that was, we talked about, uh, almost a mix and match of tests, the, the PAP alone, the HPV test alone, or the HPV PAP co-testing. So how do women and their providers know which option to choose? I know it's so complicated. I, you know, the analogy I think of, it's like being in a restaurant where the menu is so complicated, you can't decide, you know, what you want to have. And I feel like this, the simplest thing for people to understand is that often your provider's institution has decided what kind of internal guidelines they're going to follow. And these, of course, are based on the national guidelines by the various professional societies, like American Cancer Society or the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology. Um, there are multiple sort of national organizations that come together and, and devise these guidelines, and then institutions, you know, can decide, you know, based on a menu of options, you know, how, how they're going to sort of counsel their providers uh, for what guidelines to follow. Just as an example, I've worked at a clinic where PAP alone was done for everyone, you know, which is an option sort of on the menu. Um, and then I was in another setting during the same period of time where PAPs were done um, up to the age of 30, and then that co-testing with PAP and HPV was done after 30 years of age. So, you know, the guidelines actually leave several options open, um, partly because we know that not every institution actually has access to every single test technology, and the benefit of one strategy over another is not so significant that, you know, that these sort of national societies felt comfortable saying we need to remove this strategy as an option. So, it's very confusing for both patients and providers alike, um, but I think the bottom line is is that getting regularly screened is the key, regardless of what strategy your provider you right. know, that, that That's such an excellent point, and I, I was going to ask you about that. So maybe really one of the take-home messages here is, look, it's not so important exactly which method your provider is using. The, the important thing is that you get screened, right? Yes, exactly, okay. and, and I think women who – you know, are in a, have been in a long-standing monogamous relationship, think incorrectly that they are not at risk for cervical cancer. And so it is often, um, these women are also women who have poor access to healthcare who just decide, I'm just going to put it off because everything feels fine. And so, you know, even in, for women in, in that situation, trying to get some sort of screening, you know, every three years at a minimum um, or every five if you're doing co-testing, you know, is key. And again, what exactly you use to screen is not quite as important as the fact that regular screening happens. Okay, so you mentioned there that the screening intervals, the time between the screening tests, are now going to be three to five years, depending on the method used, mm -hmm. rather than the 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 the, 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 uh, the annual PAP that you know so many women just just came to count on. And a lot of the women we hear from aren't sure about that. You know, they they feel like the annual check may have gone away due to cost concerns. So. Is it safe to check for uh, cervical precancers and cancers less often than annually? Well, on your first point, Fred, um, I know exactly what you mean because when I started screening women, you know, as a medical student and in my early training, we began three years after someone started having sex, and we screened them every single year, you know, for life. So I was routinely doing pap smears on 16 and 17 year olds, and all of us, providers and patients, got used to screening every year, and then extending the screening interval feels kind of uncomfortable, you know, like we're maybe taking something away. And I, I personally had to get used to it um, myself as a provider and even as a patient. Um, and while it's true that the cost of the healthcare system is lower 
with less frequent screening, that's actually not the issue really driving um, the change in screening intervals. You know, this particular question of how, you know, what, is, what screening interval is safe has been examined by many clinical trials, both in the United States, Europe, and Canada. Um, and the answer to your question about whether or not it's safe to check less than annually, um, the answer is yes, um, definitively, yes. And, of course, we didn't know this when the PAP was first introduced, and we all assumed in the scientific community that more is better. And um, even though right. it's not intuitive, yeah, I mean, it's not intuitive to us, the risk of precancer or cancer, you know, at screening for every three years um, versus screening every year is actually not significantly different, believe it or not. Um, and then the issue is, is that annual screening does more harm than good, um, particularly among younger women um, the, uh, under the age of 25. Um, and that's because we know in this age group that even 40% of the women with an early precancer, which is like a grade two out of three, will actually just get better on their own with no intervention or any mm -hmm. treatment. So we don't want to find those lesions and actually put these women through this treadmill of getting unnecessary procedures and surgeries when the body's immune system is going to get rid of it, you know, on its own, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's actually a great point. And I, I appreciate you for bringing it up. You know, we, we tend to, to think of tests as being completely benign things, but the fact is there can be harms associated with testing too often or too frequently, um, and exactly. I don't think people make that connection. And 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 that's that probably also ties back to something you mentioned earlier that when you were um, uh, when you were in, in medical school or, or just recently graduated, you said you were routinely doing PAPs on teenagers because you know yep. because it wasn't the standard then. You know, pretty much either at age 18 or within three years of sexual debut, something like that. Right. And and now the guidelines say that really cervical cancer screening, regardless, shouldn't start before age 21. And that's precisely for what you were just talking about. Right. You just don't want to be testing a lot of young women needlessly. It's true. And, you know, the thing is, Fred, is when you detect a, a change, when you detect that high risk HPV or precancerous change, as I mentioned, in you know, young women under the age of 25, those are going to get better on their own. And before, when we were screening annually and women were having you know, these persistent changes, we would be doing surgeries on them and actually removing part of the, of the cervix. And over time, many women had multiple surgeries that weakened the cervix and prevented um, their ability to carry a healthy pregnancy later. And so now that we know that many women will resolve even the early kind of precancerous changes on their own, we would actually like to check less often to give the body a chance to, you know, clear it on its own and not put people under um, unnecessary uh, procedures that could cause them harm later. Okay. Let's drill down a little more on the idea of HPV primary screening. And sure. that, that's uh -huh. a really, really a new wrinkle. And again, that's <laughs> where, where an HPV test is used uh, in women 25 and older. And perhaps it's followed by a PAP, depending on the results right. of the HPV test. So this is the most recent big change in the field of cervical cancer screening. So really, the obvious question to me is, why use an HPV test independent of a PAP? Sure. Um, and I just want to point out, um, before I get into that, that there has been guidance you know, listing this as an option since early 2015, but that, again, this is just a strategy among a selection on the menu of options, and it's not sort of the overwhelming national recommendation to use this. But to get back to your question about why would we use an HPV test independent of a PAP, you know, when, when we first had HPV testing around, 
um, in the early sort of um, 2000s, it could only tell us whether or not someone had one of 13 or 14 different cancer-causing types. It couldn't give you any information about what specific type was the culprit here. And we know in the United States most of the cervical cancer is caused by HPV type 16 and 18. Well, so now we have testing that can let us know whether or not the woman actually has those types 16 and 18. And in this age group of actually women 25 to 29, you know, before they actually become eligible for HPV and PAP co-testing, about half of the women, actually over half of the women with a severe precancer in that age group actually have a negative PAP smear. And right now, PAP alone is what is recommended in that age group. So scientists became interested in trying to figure out, well, what could we do? Um, could we try HPV testing independently now that we are able to find these specific types? And would that actually help us, you know, detect disease in these women 25 to 29, some of whom have precancer and don't have a positive pap smear that would sort of trigger um, us to do more investigation? Okay. So, and so I'm still trying to figure out exactly the 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 best role of the PAP with HPV yeah. primary. How it's it's how does the PAP support the HPV primary test? Is that the right way to refer to it? Yeah, I think HPV primary screening is sort of the is the right way to ref, refer to it. And so, Fred, if you can imagine, um, the way we've done it in the past is we, we would start with a PAP, and in certain women we would actually, if that PAP was mildly abnormal, we would do an HPV test, which would help us decide whether or not we should you know, do a sort of more extensive procedure and biopsies or tissue samples to see what's going on. Think about we've turned that sort of upside down. And now with HPV primary screening, we start with the HPV test. And if that initial result is negative, then great. You know, you just keep going to screening every three years. But if you have a positive HPV test result, what we do is then split these women off and do additional testing. And if that test comes back um, with type 16 or 18 being positive, those women immediately go to a sort of more invasive procedure called colposcopy, where biopsies are done to look for precancer. Because those are the women that we're most concerned may actually have a precancerous change. If you have any of the other high-risk types of HPV, so there's 12 other types in, this, in, in the particular assay that I'm thinking of, if you have any of those 12 other types, then you actually get a pap smear after your HPV test. And the results of that pap smear actually guide you sort of where to go next. So it's using some of the similar tests that we've used in the past, except it's sort of turning the sequence of how we use them upside down by starting with that primary um, HPV test. And then if it's, it's, you know, got the really bad type 16 and 18, we're going to go straight to an invasive procedure. And if we've got some of the other types, we're actually going to go to a PAP second instead of first. Okay. So that is a lot of information, and as, as I mentioned earlier, it's confusing not only to patients but to their providers as well. So I just wanted to ask you, what, what, I mean, what kind of support or education do we need to give providers about all this? You know, I, um, if I have, I think, recommendations for both providers and for patients. Um, I think for providers, I particularly like the um, website for the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology. It's ASCCP.org. Mm -hmm. Their website has a lot of great resources for clinicians. It includes um, PowerPoint presentations that review all of the data behind why the screening guidelines were made the way they were in 2012. 
I personally think it's a great place for clinicians to go to get up to speed on exactly why the recommendations changed. And I think it's important then for us as providers to look at those data and be able to translate it into simple language that patients can understand. Um, and so for, for patients, I think, you know, most patients really have only heard about the potential benefits of screening, but not the potential harms. So I think providers mm. can let patients know that screening and intervening too soon can potentially cause harm, um, you know, with unnecessary procedures. And, you know, people, I think people do understand, you know, especially younger women who are not finished maybe having children, that they could be harmed by multiple surgical procedures unnecessarily. So um, I think most people understand when it's explained to them like that. Um, and I think it also depends for providers, you know, it really depends on the age of your patients because some of my patients who are under 30 may never knew anything different. So it's not as much of an issue mm -hmm. as some of my patients who really got into the habit of screening and really feel like, you know, that they're losing some benefit by the extended intervals. So I think if a provider can go, you know, to a website such as the one I mentioned and get informed, they can, you know, be prepared, you know, they can be prepared with answers. Um, and I also think it's really important to emphasize to patients that, you know, you're an advocate for their health and that while it's true that less frequent screening does um, cost less to the healthcare system, that is not the primary driver for the, the um, extended intervals. And, you know, we're not out to save the insurance company a couple of dollars. We're really here to, to do what's best for the patient. Um, for, the, for patients, I think, you know, Asha's website has lots of great resources and and multiple podcasts, both by myself and other um, experts in the field that go over this on the patient side. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for mentioning that. So, um, uh, and our website is ashasexualhealth.org. Uh, you can you can find all of the all of the podcasts and a lot of other res a lot of information, many other resources there. And uh, also, our podcasts are available through the iTunes Store. So. Dr. Ina Park, thank you so much for your time today. We covered a lot of ground, and I'm sure things are going to continue to change, so I hope you'll come back and chat with us again. I would love to, Fred. Thanks so much. You are so welcome. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, uh, including more, more things with uh, Dr. Park, so stay tuned. And check back with us often. We're online, as I mentioned, at ashasexualhealth.org. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, at InfoAsha, and be our friend on Facebook. And when you're on the website, sign up to receive our update emails, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health. And then when we have new resources like this podcast, we'll include it in our updates and give you the link to it so you, you, can, you can stay on top of everything Asha is offering. Until next time, this is Fred Wine for Asha. So long, everybody.